Hello and welcome to East Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about a documentary, What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kale. Mm. This uh, looks like it came out in August 2018 and it's been doing the rounds on festival circuits. Yes. And it's just recently, I think maybe the end of last year, come out on streaming, mm. which is how we watched it today. It tells a story through interviews with people who knew her, through fellow critics, through her daughter, of Pauline Kale's life, how she got into reviewing, how she started, what her reviews were like, her effect on the industry, the industry's effect on her, all that sort of thing. Mm. And um, I thought it was a bit of a hagiography, to be honest. I didn't think it was... I just didn't think it was a good film. Mm. So, you know, I love Pauline Kael. I love her work and her sharpness and her wit. And, you know, I still reread her and she still makes me laugh out loud, actually. Um, she made you laugh out loud during the film. Her, her reviews or segments of them are narrated by Sarah Jessica Parker. That's right. And they were making you laugh. They were making me laugh. Yeah, she's funny. Yeah. Um, but... But the film is like a bore, I think, you know, I mean, it has its uses. So, you know, I mean, for me as an admirer, it was wonderful to see home movies of her. Mm. You know, it was wonderful to see, you know, the likes of Norman Mailer and, you know, all those film directors and so on commenting on her. Uh, it was wonderful to finally see what her daughter looks like. Yeah, which, <laughs> you know, you I mean, you know, in reading about Kale, you read a lot about her daughter. So all of those things are good. I also thought actually that what you're calling a hagiography is a much needed corrective because, you know, so much of what you read about Kale is as this harridan, as this power mongering, you know, person who, you know, uh, developed all of these critics, but only in relation to her own needs. And, you know, and so I think her daughter's kind of closing statement saying, you know, she was unaware because she thought that if, you know, if you had good intentions and they came out of a good place, yeah, then it's Anything kind of, you did was good. Anything you did was good. Yeah. Right? So getting people a job is, you know, not necessarily power-mongering. Yeah, though, you know, mm. and, and actually even the way that uh, uh, Paul Schrader described it, or one of the critics described it, she said, you know, she would call you and say, oh, we must support this film. It's a great film and it needs mm. our support. You know, she said, well, if you turned her down once or twice, then she would stop calling. And you think, well, duh, <laughs> right? Who wants to impose after the second? Yeah, but they make it sound as if she's doing something terrible, whereas, you know, she's just doing something polite, as far as I'm concerned. Right? Well, that, well, she's doing something that not most people would do. Yeah. Most people wouldn't be doing that. And they also talk about, you know, when she read something that she liked, she would immediately try and track down the author, call them, tell them she liked it. And people sort of said, there's a stalkery aspect to it, possibly. But, you know, they also say, which I think is correct, it's actually a really nice thing to do. Most people don't do it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know... And she's aware of how hard it is to write and get published, they say. Yes. And and you're right. And, like, so it's worth finding the person to say, well done. Yeah. So, so I think, for me, all of those things are a very necessary corrective. Mm. Right? Um, it's interesting. Obviously, I've not read enough and read around enough and read enough about her, not least to say read enough of her, because my impression of her is not one of the harridan that you say that people talk about her as. It's, it's also this woman of this great reputation for, for writing honestly and engagingly and interestingly and insightfully about cinema. Well, she definitely also has that <laughs> reputation. Yeah. Uh, but she really rubs men the wrong way. 
that certainly comes across in the film. She really rubs academics the wrong way, mm. right? Because, you know, academics want to make things scientific in quotation marks. They want to create categories. They want the categories to fit. Whereas, you know, her, her take is on intuition and her own individual responsiveness. And, you know, you can then disagree with her. And actually, mm. one of the things that many lovers of her criticism you know, all agree on, is that you often disagree with her. And actually, disagreeing with her didn't make her less of an interesting critic, mm. right? And you could disagree with an evaluation of the film and find, you know, her uh, description of a, of a performance fantastic and illuminating, right? Like, you know, mm. kind of, something doesn't have to be perfect to be good or interesting or valuable, right? Mm. You know, or, or somebody doesn't have to be you <laughs> to be interesting, right? <laughs> yeah, so I think kind of, uh, to me, she remains the most important American film critic ever. Yeah, and I include everyone else uh, in that from uh, AG on down the line, and I've read them all. No one is near her, no one gets close to her. Mm. Uh, you know, she writes in a way that is a pleasure to read. So one of the things of the film that I found very illuminating about the film is how often her writing was attacked. Yeah, that kind mm. of, you know, during that whole of the first year at The New Yorker, she would get letters about, you know, people kind of saying that she can't write. And I see that very interestingly reproduced uh, in current debates about grammar, right? You know, because kind of grammar is there to help you or to help the writer be understood, mm. right? Uh, it's not there to police how other people use language. Mm. Yeah, you know, and certainly I think it, it's, it's a power-mongering thing because it often means that you're creating barriers where people of different classes or of different ethnic groups and so on are not allowed to communicate in their own vernacular, in their own way of speaking, right? Or to kind of bring in language and choice of words. I mean, it was interesting to see in the film how so many of the fights with Willem Shawn was not about grammar. It was about word usage. <laughs> mm. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, anyway, so... Well, I think that the, the examples that you saw, there were a couple, were about word usage and and there was a there was a conception aspect to it as well. She There's some line about um, how a film looks like a latrine, the way it's yeah. shot. And I don't think it's the word latrine, but it's the idea that we should even be talking about that. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah. right? So, um, yeah. so I found all of that quite interesting. Yeah. Um, There's a series of um, letters sent to her by other critics, by filmmakers, responding to her pieces that um, I'd like to go back and just pause and take screenshots of because, frankly, you don't get a second look at them no. and they just come back. I mean, I thought that was very badly handled. It's a, I think it's a poor film. Yeah. You know, as a documentary, it's a poor film. And actually, without its subject matter it wouldn't even be worth looking at. I mean, the only reason, you know, why I watch this film and why I would recommend that other people watch it is because of its subject and because, mm. you know, you do get information about the subject that you don't get anywhere else. The final point I'll make about it being a hagiography is um, that it doesn't seem to really want to admit that she had faults. It talks about thing, it talks about faults that she has, but it always ends up kind of coming across that these faults were really uh, positives, in some way. No, you know, like 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 her her acidity, kind of she constantly seems to be getting into fights with other critics, criticizing them, um, in a way that seems kind of almost unprofessional, really. Well, um, not not to me. 
But in, it doesn't really admit that I mean, anything really might you know, be a fault about it. Film critics are the most obsequious, <laughs> subservient group of, of, of writers there is, of critics there is. I mean, it's very difficult to maintain any kind of independence when publicists dangle an interview with mm. Tarantino, you know. Or, like in this case, you know, what you see over and over again is the extent to which filmmakers and producers, you know, went out of their way to, uh, what's the word, uh, a blocker, right? Mm. So, you know, I mean, it's, they're, they're, they're almost things that would be unheard of now, right? The proposition here is that Warren Beatty went to the trouble of creating a huge, highly paid job for her just to get her out of reviewing and also to humiliate her, yeah, kind mm. of, you know. Who would bother doing that with a film critic now? Or to change the release date of a film so that it would be covered by someone else and not her, mm. right? And on the other side, to print a whole review as an ad, yeah? Mm. Which are, yeah, so you get kind of all of those different sides. I mean, it's quite, it's I quite a bit extraordinary. About, I thought the bit about the release date was interesting. Who was the... Bob Evans, the producer of Rosemary's Baby right. and The Godfather and The Getaway and... Was this a thing about the March the 14th and she was leaving on March 15th and he said, don't let her see it because I want the other reviewer to review it. That's right. See, the thing about that was interesting was he starts off, I think it's on Dick Cavett. A lot of these clips come from Dick Cavett. And he starts off by saying something like, the only, the only critic I don't care if she mauls the film is Pauline Kael. No. Yeah, most critics yeah, I, I give a shit about, but not Pauline Kael. And then, you know, the act of saying... No, I want the other reviewer to review it. it. Says you do give a shit. Well, actually, you give more than <laughs> yeah. yeah. To change the whole release yeah. of a film, so that this. I'm one not sure. Critic... It was, I'm not sure it was about changing the release. It was just it was being released the day after she would take the hiatus, and he said, "Make sure she does." It was being released the day before, rather she would leave, and she wanted it to be the last film she would review before she went on uh -huh. hiatus. And he said, "Just make sure she doesn't see it. Give it to the other reviewer." Yes. So yeah, but um, but yeah, the point is clearly he gives a shit, and there is this whole strain, as you point out, of men's egos being being punctured yes. by her and so, it comes across as very very true really I mean you can just feel it well you can just feel it I mean uh, without a doubt she's um, a very very smart woman who speaks her mind that doesn't take any shit and powerful men really don't like that you see what I find so extraordinary about her is you know she's the daughter of Jewish immigrants from Poland who grew up in a chicken ranch Mm. in Northern California, in the middle of nowhere, mm. right? Yeah, so for her to have become as cultured, as bohemian, yeah, as yeah. interested in, in all of the arts, it's an amazing thing, <laughs> right? And actually, you realize, because people often say, oh my God, you know, she really made her career in her mid-40s, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think, by the, I think by the time that she got the job at the New Yorker, she was 45, 46, it's very late. Mm. Yeah, she was very old when she started, right? And then you realize, well, the reason why is because she was this immigrant from Pataluma, or this child of immigrants from Pataluma, right? That it takes a while to get to San Francisco and New York and LA, <laughs> yeah, mm. and kind of, you know, and that there's an effort of will and a desire, yeah, like to learn and to see and to talk, yeah? Yeah. Kind of. They talk about when she picked up an author that she liked or discovered an author that she liked, she would read everything by them. Yes. So, um, it's I have been reading quite a lot of her stuff. I've been picking it up because I really hadn't read any. I don't. I mean, I must read the odd review, but I hadn't read anything really. 
And then um, I picked up, I lost it at the movies. Yes. I was reading quite a lot of that. And I thought, God, this is, I mean, it's just the insight and the the mode of speaking. And it really was just the insight. It was the way she would just pick up a thing and go, oh, yeah, that is exactly how this works. And you've put this into words. You've noticed it. And it just makes obvious, perfect sense. Like um, the movies about posh people at parties in Europe. Was it the sick man of Europe? Parties? Yes. Welcome to the yeah the sick man of Europe. You know, and how she she just picks up on this trend and points out everything that it meant, everything that it meant and signified, and everything that was wrong with it. And you just go, oh yes, yeah, you're exactly right. I I grew up at a time when collections of film criticism were very popular. Mm. Yeah. So you know you could buy Otis Ferguson and you could buy James Agee. And I forget his name now, but you know the guy who wrote on termite art. Uh, oh, uh, Manny Farber. Manny Farber. My brother just bought me his book. Oh yeah, it's it's wonderful. He's wonderful. Yeah. Robert De Niro's mom had uh, a long term affair with Manny Farber. Okay. Um, That's worth knowing. Yeah. Well, you know, just, <laughs> I mean, what you realize is that actually these were all circles of friends. Yes. Right? You know, so uh, I rem- I read Dwight McDonald. And then, you know, there would be, like, Canadian film critics also uh, uh, who would get their own collections, right? So it was a time when, you know, it was a thing. Um, and there was an interest. And, you know, kind of films were the subject of conversation, the culture. The way I suppose, you know, uh, HBO series or is there, the ilk is now. But the reading kind of was also part of the activity, the reading and the talking. and I suppose the way that it is now. Um, but of all of them, the people who I liked the most, who felt most relevant, was Pauline Kael. I'm one of those people who went and bought The New Yorker just to read her. And I must have been like 15, 16, 17. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is that I didn't get The New Yorker. You know, kind of the New Yorker tone is based on a kind of a snobbery or an elitism of having enormous cultural capital and not only enormous cultural capital but the kind of cultural capital that you could only get by living in new york right mm. yeah by kind of by going to the whitney and the met and you know mm. so so actually a lot of the new yorker was not accessible to me i didn't get it i didn't understand it i didn't understand the jokes you know like a kind of a working class immigrant kid doesn't understand you know that upper middle class way of life on which the jokes are based mm. but i got her you know, and kind of, and I understood what she was saying about the movies. Uh, and she made me want to see things, right? And she made you think about it. And you think, well, isn't that what criticism really is meant to be about? It's not about being right or wrong or, you know, whether it fits into this category, it's really that category, which is so much about what scholarship is about, actually. It's about getting people involved in an art form, right? So I valued her then. I bought all of her collections as they came out, and I've never ceased owning them. I, like, I, I was actually surprised to see that the copy of Reeling, you know, that I bought uh, at Classics Bookstore in Montreal in 1977, 78, is still the copy of it that I have now. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's gone through, I mean, I've lived in five cities in between, and it's, I've carried it around with me since. <laughs> so, you know, kind of, uh, some people might say that that says a lot about me and my shortcomings rather than, you know, as a strength of Pauline Kael's. Um, but uh, uh, I think 
she's somebody who, uh, in some ways, it's funny because, you know, you were talking about the hagiography. Well, in some ways, I think nobody has held up as well as her. So of all of these people that I'm talking about, you know, kind of Manny Farber's recently in print. James Agee seems to have gone slightly out of fashion that you could still find him in the library. You know, people like Otis Ferguson, I don't even think are well known anymore. Um, she was she was out of print for a while, yeah. But I, I I think in some ways she's never she's never been out of the loop of a conversation on American culture. Yeah, she's always been. When you talk about movies in America, when you talk about American movies in American culture, you you have to engage with her on some level mm. right? in that period. On the other hand. You know, she is somebody who is completely absent, largely sneered at, yeah, in, in academic circles. Mm. You know? uh, she seemed to be like the opposite of, uh, you know, what academia is meant to be about. And rightly so. She was very anti-academia. You know, she was like, not anti-academia, but, you know, she was saying as soon as like you bring, you put movies in a curriculum, you kill them. You know, like, mm. you know, because then people don't respond to the movies. They acquire expected responses, right? Or kind of what you should like, what you shouldn't like. Mm. I mean, I'm conscious I'm, you know, of, of that as a teacher sometimes. Yes, that you should like this. <laughs> it's great, yeah. right? <laughs> Whereas, you know, she was the opposite of that. She wanted audiences to kind of, you know, develop their own responses. Yeah, that your response is valid. Yeah. One of the critics who's interviewed in this, and I forget his name, he's the guy who you pointed out is a very good reviewer, get very good critic. The guy James Wilcott. Sorry? Was it James Walker? Yes. Um, he said something which I thought, is that true actually? Where he says um, she didn't believe in absolutes. And, you know, from some, from some of what I read, I wonder whether that's true because that she, she definitely seems to believe in a very clear distinction between sort of artsy, pretentious and popular. I mean, she really sort of, kind of supports one and, and d- d- derides the other. Um, um, yes and no. You know, because... The thing is, she, she did very much like art movies, but like with her review of Shoah, yeah, just because it had serious subject matter, right, didn't mean it was good. Just because it was done in an arty way didn't mean it was good, mm. right? Yeah. So I think you know, the puncturing of the pretentiousness in both popular film and in um, art cinema, which in those days there was a clear distinction of, Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hollywood's popular cinema was, you know, Hollywood cinema. Art cinema was, you know, played in art houses and had subtitles, right? Um, mm. I'm trying to think, you know, because obviously foreign cinema is popular in its own country, right? Yeah, um, then it comes to the West, or, or the West, it comes to America yeah. and becomes art cinema. Yes, though some things are very arty, but there is a difference, for example, between you know, the artiness of Antonioni or the artiness of the Sika, mm-hmm. yeah? Uh, so, um, yeah? So she's responding to the Sika. She's not responding to Antonioni. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you bring up the Sika because one of the things I was thinking for the first half hour or more of the film is I'm not getting enough of a sense here of what she loves. The film, at least for the opening, is very, very keen on what she doesn't like. Uh. And what she doesn't like when she doesn't like it is very entertaining and it's quite insightful and all the rest of it. But I'm thinking, like, there's, there's, there's this other side to her, right? What she loves. And you only see it in... They, they 
bring up a review of Shoeshine, where she talks about um, having broken up with someone and gone to the movie and then coming out in tears and not knowing whether her tears are for herself or for the characters in the film and how much she identified with the two boys. Um, and it's a great response and it's really heartfelt and beautiful. But that's the only impression I get from the start. The film is, seems much more interested in what she doesn't like and her combativeness. And not just with films, but with, as I said, other critics. Filmmakers. I think that's true to a degree. Though, for example, at the very beginning of the film, they go to great lengths to, tell, to show you how much she loved 1930s cinema. That's true. You know, and the wisecracking dames and, you know, the sharp, intelligent women and, you know, the retorts and a kind of an unsentimental attitude that they all had. You know, so, um, and I think certainly reading her criticism, you you very much know who she loved. She loved Barbra Streisand, mm. right? Um, she loved musicals. Well, yeah. then that's a, that's a problem with the film. Yeah, yeah. Because the film does not give you that impression at all. Yeah. You know what I really hated? And I don't know how else to do it. Mm-hmm. I hated the Sarah Jessica Parker readings of her reviews because uh, it occupies too much space. You know, so obviously, like, think, for example, if you'd seen a documentary on Mailer or Dickens, right? You know, the documentary wouldn't be reading you passages of all of their works. That's ridiculous, right? It would be focusing on the life, the career, other people's responses, the influence on the field. or Yeah, like, the, you know, the life itself. I mean, one of the things that really, um, that I really didn't like is the way that the film glosses over her relationships, right? Mm. You know, I would have, I mean, this is a story about a woman, about a person. I'd like to know what was important in their lives, right? Who, who she married and who the father of her child was. And, you yeah, know, the film does it very, very quickly. James Broughton is the father of uh, Gina James, her daughter. Yeah. And, and the film says he hooks up with her and ha- or has his child, it says. Which is an interesting phrasing. Yes. Um, uh, makes it sound like an agreement. Well, it could be, and yeah. let me tell you why. So nobody knows, right? But the father was James Broughton, mm-hmm. a very famous poet and experimental filmmaker, very, very famous, and also a figure in, uh, you know, the Beat Generation. He was a figure in the gay liberation movement. Mm-hmm. He was the founder of uh, Radical Fairies, which you know. Uh, uh, so he was, he was, uh, you know, well, who knows what people's sex lives really are, <laughs> right? You know, but um, he had many associations with gay culture of the period. Right. I think he was also married subsequently and had children, right? So, you know, when you say, oh, it felt almost like a deal, it could have been, yeah. you know. And actually, that would have been interesting to know. Yeah, right? but it's like, true to say the film totally glosses it over. Yeah, and I think it's important to gloss over because one of the things that gay man a little older than I and maybe a little bit more politicized than I had as a certainty was Pauline Kell's homophobia which I disagree with right yeah you know uh, but I think you know there's something she says something and a review of funny lady or something you know that then was uh, certain phrases were picked up as proof of her homophobia uh, which again you know you think well, things are so much more interesting and so much more complex. Because clearly, you know, uh, in her real life, yeah, she wasn't. So, you know, and actually, maybe the use of certain phrases comes from being too inside the culture. 
that you feel free with the, their use and then don't realize how they'll play in a larger mm. setting, right? Um, I had read one or two things of hers that where, where just the word homosexuals just sort of stands out in, in comparison with heterosexuals. And she talks about the way homosexuals act or think or, or, or the way they behave as audiences or something like that. And I never, I never put it down as homophobia, but I put it down as like that was actually kind of the way people spoke at the time almost. Maybe, um, but you also have to remember degree. a context in which the very word homosexual wasn't allowed in polite society. I mean, mm. I would look it up, but I think the, the New York Times did not use the word homosexual until, you know, the 80s. Actually, let's look that up. You know, because it, it was a story. Oops. Right. Um, oh, it says here, the New York Times is the first major publication to use the word homosexuality in 1926. Okay, here we go. I've got... An article in the New York Times that was written for Pride 2017 yes. called How the Times Gave Gay Its Own Voice, brackets again, ah. by David Dunlap. I'm gay. I could not have written these words in the New York Times 30 years ago. Not out of fear. My family, friends and colleagues had known for quite a while. No, because I could not have written these words because our manual of style and usage prohibited it. Gay. Do not use as a synonym for homosexual unless ah, it appears okay. in the formal capitalised name of an organisation or in quoted matter. There you go. Liberation arrived on June 15th, 1987 in a note to the staff from Alan M. Siegel, who was then an assistant managing editor. Quote, starting immediately, we will accept the word gay as an adjective meaning homosexual. Okay. Maybe that's what you're referring that's to. That's what I was referring to, though. I got it muddled. Yeah. yeah. So um, it means the homosexual was in use before then. Yeah. And not yeah. gay. Yes. Yeah. But it would have had several connotations and it would have incurred a frisson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think one of the things, I think actually the film's greatest pro, you know, the, the thing that's best about it is that it, it's kind of a, it's a fan film basically. And if you are a fan and if you're not that, you, know, you don't, don't take too, too much of a critical eye on it, I suppose, it's quite pleasurable just to sort of sit in the company of these people reminiscing about this great woman and her work and seeing all these clips that. The, the clips of all these films, there's a huge variety of them, and they pass by pretty much entirely unnamed. You know, yes. the, the only time they'll be named is when someone is talking about the film. Pauline Kael will be, you know, or, or Sarah Jessica Parker will be reciting a Kale review about the film, and you're seeing the clips that she's speaking about, and that's kind of nice. Most of the time, actually, the, the clips are illustrative, like, uh, in the most basic way, like the specific film that's being used. Now, you have a clip from Star Wars... And Han Solo says something like, I'm starting to like her. And it's like, it's it's because the film at that point is talking about people starting to like Pauline Kale. It's just illustrative. That's it. Yeah. But there's a kind of pleasure, actually, in the torrents of clips, I found. Yes, there is. And they're very good quality clips. Um, and if you do recognise some of them, they are very pertinent to what the voiceover is saying. Yeah. Some of them are, yeah. Um, they're, not, they're not all that, that rudimentary. But a lot of them are that as well. Um, and they are just filling in space. Mm. More so than the, than the recited reviews. Because actually, I think the thing about the recited views that I didn't mind was if you're talking about a film critic, it's nice to have examples of the criticism in the film so we know what we're talking about. I suppose. I, I mean, you need some of that, but you didn't need that much of it. Uh, I must say, I didn't actually mind it all that much. I did. I kind of, you know, it was a recurring thing. And of course, you know, what she is famous for is her writing. You know, but there are ways of talking about her writing without having an actress read passages of it that really create a tempo for the film. That, yeah, it's, so it's not, it doesn't happen once. 
It happens many times. And actually, I really cannot think of any other documentary I've seen with, on writers which does that. So, you know, you might have a documentary on Fitzgerald that at some point reads the closing lines of The Great Gatsby or something, right? But that would be about it, or, you know, kind of... But yeah. maybe the documentary is worse for that, if that's the case, because we're talking about a writer, we're talking about their work. If you were talk, if you had a documentary about a filmmaker, you would show clips of their work. But that's that would the, seem very obvious. Yeah, and if you were writing about Kale's writing, you would also include lots of passages of her writing, and it wouldn't, uh, uh, it would enhance the argument. But right. there is something about the visual medium, you know, uh, where writing is such a central structural aspect of it that I think did not work in the film's favor. Right. Even though I laughed, I appreciated her writing. Yes. You know, I responded to her writing even orally. And it, I bet it made you think, oh, I'll go off and read some more of her stuff. Well. You know, uh, <laughs> I kind uh, of think look, if the film doesn't also talk about her significance or whatever, then that's just the film's fault for not like there's room to do that and talk about her writing. Well, you see, for example, there are so many things that I would like to know more about than that the film doesn't offer, hmm. right? So there was all of her first trip to New York, where she tried, you know, to become an artist and failed. Mm -hmm. That in itself is a wonderful story, right? You know, so I.e. this career as a critic is based on a failed career as an artist. Mm -hmm. Right, something that people accuse critics of, yeah, yeah, of doing to begin with. That's you know, you that would be a wonderful uh, platform to discuss many ideas of art and criticism, right? When she returns to California and she begins writing the, uh, uh, she she begins to go on the radio and she begins writing the program notes for the cinema. I would like to know a whole lot more about that career because the film tells you, you know, she was in touch with all of the artistic sets. She knew everybody. Right, she was very social. Well, you want to know who did she know? Like, you know, what was her relations with all of these people? You know, did she contribute to that art scene? Is she actually part of that whole art scene in a way that we don't know about? Mm. Yeah. Um, later on, at the end of the film, when they show you her holding hands with her sister, well, you know, it's the first time you realize she has a sister. You know, she talks about her brothers running that farm earlier on, but there's no mention of a sister. Mm -hmm. What was her family life like? You know, I mean, this, you know, this is meant to be a biographical work on this great critic, and you, you come up with more questions than answers. Yeah, but I, but I would say ultimately that um, all of those failings would not be remedied by taking out the clips of Sarah Jessica Parker talking. Well, <laughs> they, they'd be remedied by using the huge chunks of time that that takes to... I don't think there was purpose. that much time. I, yeah, and, and the film is as long as it wants to be. It's, what, an hour and 40 minutes, which is roughly appropriate I suppose but I don't think it's like the time you save removing those is time you put into that I don't think there was any interest in any of that in the film mm. they would have they would have spent time on it otherwise they would have I just I actually don't think that's that the film has the film is too simple it's not interested in that well it's true yeah. it's simple yeah it lacks complexity for sure it doesn't ask any of the right questions about her um, any of the, like, the, that you've just asked mm. you know these things you want to know more about so there's a room for other better films about yeah. Kale. The interesting thing is I can't think of any other critic except maybe Bazin who has had films made about them. Can you? Uh, about them? No, I don't. I, no, I've I suppose Roger Ebert's had a film made about him recently, actually. Has he? Yeah, I think his widow made a film about about him. Right. Uh, certainly about his last years, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there are very, you know, 
Well, the film is very interested in Pauline Kael's significance as a critic at the time, and and is very interested more generally in the influence that critics had or could have. Yeah. To the point where, because that's really not the case these days. No. <laughs> so, so it's to the point where, as someone who wasn't around in that generation, you're going, how true is that? It's true. You know, yeah. I mean, you just must, it must be. <laughs> um, I mean, you see, all of the release patterns were very different. As someone who grew up in Montreal, mm. right, you'd often read the New York Times on Sunday and, you know, kind of a film would appear, you know, and the reviews would be out and the reviews would be plastered over the ads, right? But it hadn't arrived to Montreal yet, right? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it did because actually Montreal was included in a small release of, you know, the 30 top Lowe's theaters or whatever, you know, so, so Montreal was, was often included in the initial release, but, but sometimes it wasn't. Anyway, what I'm trying to describe is a pattern where, you know, you'd have films that are platformed, you know, they're released maybe in Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, New York for a week, and then they open up to 30 cinemas, and so they include New York and, you know, I don't know, New Orleans or whatever, right? Yeah, and then kind of, you know, they would play in one cinema, they were his. Mm. You know, they would play in one cinema for a year, right? Like, I think Annie Hall played in Montreal in one theater for a whole year, you right. know, right? So, so it means that important critics, like the critics of the, of the New York or the New York Times, Chicago, the local critics were always important. Mm. Um, you know, kind of, they had time to build up a film, right? Like kind of, you know, your life did not depend on the first week's release. I mean, actually, all of that um, marketing spending that you have now was a way of getting around critics, right? I, you know, that advertising strategy of initially of releasing it in 700 or 1,000 cinemas, you know, and spending a fortune on television advertising was, you know, you, you blitz, you know, viewers and kind of you can ignore critics for the first week, right? Like, you know, because yeah. the review, the word of mouth wouldn't have been built up. So you can collect all of your money in the first few weeks. That's, I think, one of the great factors and what's behind contemporary uh, uh, patterns of distribution. Right. Yeah, that started with Jaws, right? Pretty much. Well, TV yeah. spots for Jaws and things. Yeah, I mean, I think Jaws. I don't know if it started with Jaws, but Jaws was certainly a good example right. of a successful distribution like that. But that's because you know it was initially seen as an exploitation film about a shark, right? <laughs> you know. Um, but the normal thing is that films would be allowed to build, mm. right? And that one, two, three-year runs were not unheard of, you know. I mean, if you read about films like Ben-Hur in the West End, right, they played for like three years in the West End, or, you know, like, you know, kind of, I think Sheldon Hall has written on this, you know, what were the longest releases in the West End, and I forget now, you know, but West Side Story ran for years, South Pacific ran for years, mm. you know, uh, Ben-Hur ran for years, right, so when something runs for years, it means that kind of, you know, reviews count, yeah, and reviews are discussed and they form part of the discussion of the film, yeah, mm. that uh, contributes to word of mouth, right? And so I think kind of critics, critics had a different role to play then. Also, the written word had a different role in the culture than it does now. It's more significant. Yes. They do talk at the end of this film about if she were reviewing today, you know, what would it be like? Would she still be important? Because media has become so much more fragmented. Anyone who wants to can put up a blog, mm. start a podcast. Mm. 
Um, <laughs> you know, whatever they like, and no one necessarily has to pay attention to them. Um, so it's obvious that like it's much harder to get any kind of purchase and and see your work as a critic kind of kind of become significant. Um, no one has that. You know, what they're talking about, like I said, is what they're talking about with Pauline Kael and and the critics around her is totally unrecognisable today. It's totally unrecognisable. So one of the interesting things, I'm always interested in money. Money tells you a lot. You know, much more important than adjectives. So, you know, she's constantly talking about, or the film constantly tells you, that the New Yorker did not pay a living wage. Mm. You know, she had to go and lecture and yeah, the, the other six months and so on. And I was thinking, well, I would be very curious to see how much the New Yorker paid her, right? And compare that to an average American wage of the period. Mm. Because what you see at the end of the film is, you know, that like, I don't know, 10 years before she retires, kind of, she buys a mansion. <laughs> it looks like a mansion, right? Yeah, you in know? the country. Yeah, in Connecticut. I mean, you know, it isn't in like Kansas boondock. It's like, you know, within commuting distance to New York. It's a fucking mansion, right? So how, you know, and she only began to earn a decent paying job when she was 45, 46. So, you know, the New Yorker must have paid her enough to save to buy that house. <laughs> like, yeah. I might think of a different house. I thought that that sort of farmhouse looking place was in Massachusetts. Okay, sorry, Massachusetts. Oh, was it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm saying Connecticut. It might have been Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay. In any case, it's within commuting distance of New York. Yeah, right? yeah. And the nice the big East country Coast. house it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they say she was very poorly paid, but it doesn't bear any comparison to now where people mm. are either not paid or they're paid by the word. Yeah, I mean, yes. you know, f- film criticism as a profession has been completely devalued because nobody can actually live on it, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't getting paid an exposure. Was she? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she was getting paid in money. And speaking of getting paid in exposure, <laughs> one of the things that I really loved hearing yeah. was her declaration to the radio station, you know, that unless she started getting paid for her radio work, that this would be her last one and doing it mm. on air. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Well, good radio. I mean, it's like when Danny Baker went mental on the BBC a few years ago because he was told he was getting fired. He was getting refreshed out of the schedules. And they told him this just before he went on air. And he lost it. I bet. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> and it was wouldn't? fantastic radio. <laughs> yeah, well, who wouldn't? I mean, imagine telling them someone before they go on air. I know, it's such a stupid thing to do. Uh, but, yeah. I remember the Renata Adler um, demolition job mm-hmm. coming out. And I remember thinking how nasty she was. What a bitch. That bitch Renata Adler. <laughs> and actually I've subsequently read... Um, I forget if it was a biography or it was a memoir by Renata Adler. You know, in which uh, she talks about how the perception of her that way remains ever, you know, ever after. Uh, and rightly so, right? Because it... So one of the interesting things about Pauline Kael is that you, you think that what drives the criticism is love. Yeah, it's actually, it's love of the medium or love of the movies. I mean, you know, so even when she kind of writes snappishly or whatever, it's because of how things could be better and how they could be beautiful. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's not out of meanness, really. Though, you know, kind of they say, oh, she could be cruel. Well, she could be cruel in the sense that, you know, she didn't mind firing what, yeah, when she thought it, it mm. deserved it. But I don't think even that came out of 
you know. So she could be cruel, but I don't think cruelty was her main impetus. I think, mm. you know, her main impetus was love. Was Renata Adler was a bitch. I mean, you know, the whole reason for doing that essay was as a demolition job. It was like really calculated to mm. demolish, right? Uh, and I'm glad that the largest effect has been on her in her very unsisterly act, right? Um, because the thing about Renata Adler, she had also been a New Yorker reviewer earlier. Mm. So, um, yeah, karma. But I thought what you know was interesting was to have all the other letters uh, of appreciation yes. from Spielberg and you know and actors and you know and so on. So I mean you know ca kind of Spielberg saying you're the only one who's ever really gotten this movie you know and so on. To me, it's kind of significant, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jaws, she got. Yeah. Apparently, and no one else did. Yeah. According to Spielberg, maybe he was just buttering her up. Maybe. But, but that's also one of those things that you say, well, now I want to go and read a review of Jules. Yeah. I want to know what she said, what she got that no one else did. Yeah. You know? Uh, so, so, overall, I would really recommend this film, but I would really recommend this film not as a documentary, which is kind of... It's entertaining, but it's not innovative. It's not very good, really. But actually, the subject matter to me remains fascinating, and I'm very glad I saw it. Yeah, it's like if you're already interested, then there's entertainment and kind of points of interest here but you kind of bring a lot of it yourself as well mm. like the film actually is doing very much itself to mm. to render things interesting or ask the right questions mm. it's not a very good documentary mm. no alright thank you very much for listening we are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts Spotify SoundCloud and YouTube on social media we're on Facebook and Twitter and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com bye 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 <laughs>